my hope is that it's not a moment, it's a movement. It is the week of June 22nd, and welcome to Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues in national security and foreign policy. I'm Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director. Today, we'll be doing a deep dive with Bishop Garrison, director of national security outreach for Human Rights First and co-founder and president of the Rainey Center for Public Policy. Bishop is a graduate of West Point and the recipient of two bronze stars, a combat action badge, and a meritorious service medal. After his service, he received a law degree from William & Mary Law School, worked on President Obama's reelection campaign, and worked in the Obama administration within the Department of Homeland Security, and later as a deputy foreign policy advisor on the presidential campaign of Secretary Hillary Clinton. Bishop, listen, thanks for being here. No, thanks for having me. Bishop, talk to us about the moment that we're in, right? We saw the killing of George Floyd at the hands of law enforcement officers. We've seen legitimate expressions of outrage and anger, frustration. We saw the protests. We saw the alleged reform that's taking place. But this isn't the first moment like this, right? It isn't just Ahmed Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. There's a long history here going back to the very roots of our nation, the continuing state of slavery and the vestiges of racism that have stayed with us, right? We know this has been with us a long time. This moment feels different, though. Is this moment really different? My hope is that it's not a moment, it's a movement. I believe in that regard that this movement is potentially different. One, I think it was the impact of having multiple innocent Black lives, one after another, highlighted in not just months, but you're really talking weeks, with protesters with supporters telling the world at large, look, Black Lives Matter, we have been engaging in this issue for so long now, look at what we're telling you. And to see that video, eight minutes and 46 seconds, he cried out for his life. I think that is what has really shaken so many people to their core, that it doesn't matter your background, socioeconomic status, the color of your own skin, to see that, to watch that video and not be impacted by it is just absolutely impossible. So I think that is what has really brought us to this fever pitch. And then when you add something, for instance, like uh, COVID-19, and you're seeing the racial disparities associated with it, and you tie that back to what Black people and what people of color at large have been going through in this country, I think it's incredibly, incredibly powerful. And that's what we're seeing taking place right now. One of the ways I've thought about this, and I'm interested in your thoughts about whether this is the right analogy, and maybe it's not, but the, sort of these underlying long-standing issues of race and, and the way we've handled in this country are sort of the kindling, right? COVID-19 may have been a fire starter or a match in some ways. And then we've got China and Russia and some of these nation states outside pouring lighter fluid on the fire. Is that a fair way of thinking about it? Or is there another way to think about it that makes more sense? I think particularly right now in the present, yes, I think that's a good way of looking at it, that you had so many different efforts and issues that are impacting this particular dialogue right now. I think you've already kind of laid it out that the original sin of slavery, 400 years of not simply oppression, but of human rights abuses, distinctly focused in on Black Americans is really what we're ultimately talking about and what we're discussing that we need to deal with here. But when you add the fact that you have Russian and Chinese misinformation and propaganda, and when we talk about the COVID disparities, those are not disjointed from the overall discussion of what Black people have gone through in this nation. I mean, the underlying health issues that people of color are dying from are directly tied back to the lack of opportunity, the lack of economic wealth, all of these issues that are inherently built within this system that is built on racism. 
racism. So there's no way to separate all these different things. And you have foreign entities that are trying to take advantage of that. And you have domestic entities as well. You have white supremacists that are trying to infiltrate a lot of these protests and you see a lot of the damage and destruction that's taken place. All of it is coming together to build this power keg that we're now watching the country deal with. Right. Now, I think that's exactly right. So I want to talk a little about your own experience. So, you know, you've served in the military. You've worked in foreign policy and national security establishment for years at the highest levels of the government. And now you're out in the nonprofit community doing that same sort of work. Talk to you about your path, your personal experience, and to the extent you're willing to talk about with racism, what have you experienced and what have you seen in the sort of larger environment uh, in this community in particular? Sure. I think the grander conversation, for me at least, is the backdrop of growing up as a young black man in South Carolina. Uh, my parents were um, college sweethearts that had known each other since they were 14 years old. They grew up together in Gaffney, South Carolina, a small town. If you ever watch House of Cards, that's where uh, Frank Underwood was from and represented randomly enough. <laughs> it's a real town. So they grew up in a time of segregation and both went to uh, SC State, an HBCU, a historically black college university in South Carolina. So to hear their stories and to know what they went through themselves uh, really impacted me. I started off in elementary school at, at a, uh, a majority black school, and my mother was a career educator. She began teaching in my hometown, Lexington, the district we're in. So I went from majority black to being the only black kid in the majority of all my classes. So again, all of this historically is what I grew up in and what helped shape my personality at a very early age. And to continue through the, to high school and make that decision, I was approached by a guidance counselor my mother was, who she was friends with in the district and said, hey, you should really get a bishop thinking about West Point. Because I think given his grades and uh, his attributes, I think it would be a very good path for him to potentially go down. And for me, my privilege, my opportunity was because my mother was an educator. They weren't randomly going up to every black kid in uh, town with that type of uh, information. So I immediately understood and knew the opportunity that I was being potentially presented with and understood that would mean I would need to ensure that I had some type of impact on others throughout my career and my life, paying it forward as I moved forward. So race has always been at least in the backdrop. I have not personally on regular, definitely on a regular basis, but personally dealt with direct racism. But when you talk about these systems, you're talking about how others perceive you and the line that you know that you have to walk whenever you go into these rooms. And I think that the new chief of staff of the Air Force, uh, General Charles Brown, put out a video. I totally missed it. I think it was you guys that flagged it. I went back and watched it. It's one of the most powerful things I've watched in my professional career recently to have a man of his stature at that rank tell you that I have experienced inherent racism, I've experienced both indirect and directly, is incredible. To hear his stories of, uh, you know, walking into a room and people questioning on one side his blackness and on the other side questioning whether or not he deserved to be in the room to begin with is astonishing. And that is the type of thing that I have had to deal with. I had had to deal with people questioning my blackness at times or had to deal with people saying, oh, well, I, I wonder, you know, it's, it's, you speak so articulately. <laughs> like it's, it's great to, to have you in the room. I have heard those types of things. 
Yeah, so it is that part of the bias that lives within our society because of these historic systems of racism that we do have to deal with. And for me, I would much rather be able to look the guy in the eye and deal with the person who has the Confederate flag and who's telling me I'm not good enough because of my race than the more insidious individual that is quietly smiling at me, shaking my hand, and then passing over me for a position that they know that I deserve or should have because they know in their heart that they have an issue with me because of it. Right. And it's just as insidious, isn't it, as you said earlier, that they think, oh, it's so great that you're articulate. What are you talking about? I mean, it's crazy. I want to go off of one thing you said at the beginning of what you just said in your answer. You said something about when you walk in that room and having to sort of police the line. What does that mean? What do you mean by that? What do you mean by the idea that sort of walk room and there's some sort of an aura that you have to watch out for? Am I hearing that right? Well, there's so many instances, uh, particularly the higher you go in your career. And I would say that many of my colleagues that I've worked with in uh, DC and throughout my career have been very understanding and not <laughs> in this in this manner I'm about to uh, describe, but I think inherently as a person of color, there's always some level of expectation that when you speak with your voice, you're speaking for an entire demographic. And I would imagine that women, uh, having conversations with my wife about this, who is uh, herself a Caucasian woman, that women have had to deal with this type of thing too, that when you speak, well, oh, well, Bishop's the black guy, we should ask him about X, or he knows you know, X, so what are his thoughts about this? Rather than I am an individual who's speaking with his own voice, and that voice has been shaped by the fact that I have grown up as an African-American, as a veteran, as a Southerner within this area. And that is the perspective I bring to the conversation versus I'm here to represent an entire demographic. I'm here to represent all black people. That is the line. And in order to ensure that people understand that, you have to have an honest conversation with them. And it's going to be hit or miss often whether or not people, one, understand what you're attempting to tell them. And two, whether or not they're offended, because up until this moment, and I'm sure you've probably had to deal with this, too, at some point, up until this moment, we cannot have honest conversations about race because so many people, particularly intelligent, educated white people, were afraid that they would be labeled as being racist if they asked certain questions or if they addressed certain things. It's like, no, you're trying to learn about our culture. You're trying to understand the issues that we're dealing with. That's why I'm so hopeful in this moment, because I am finally, finally, after 15 to 20 years of being in a career, I am getting those questions. And people are actually thoughtfully addressing the issues of our time in a way I have never heard of before. And in a way that, you know, speaking with my mother, she's never heard of, to be quite honest. So that, that, that's why I'm hopeful in this moment. And that's great. I mean, people are finally getting real you know, on this issue. So you went to West Point, you've been up through the military, you've now been out in the civilian world, but in national security roles and now out in the nonprofit sector. I think there's a perception, I think probably right, but I'm interested in your view on this. Do we have a diversity problem in the national security intelligence communities? And if so, why do you think that is? I think we do. Now I've, I've spoken about it, I've written about it previously. Back in uh, 2017, I was calling for more, particularly women of color, particularly black women, uh, to be in both junior roles and more senior roles, because a part of this too is a pipeline issue. I think historically, I've talked about this with a few groups recently, historically, the national security community, at least on the progressive side, the liberal side, recruits from the people they know. So if you have colleagues that work at Georgetown or if you work with them at DOD or what have you, you're going to reach out to them to say, hey, do you know a young, good person that can come and fill this role? 
that I need he or she to come be my special assistant for whatever. So that's been the pipeline for a very long time. And if it wasn't that, it was, well, who went to Harvard? Who went to Yale? What are your top Ivy Leagues? What does it look like? And those two pipelines look very homogenous. They were very white. They were very male. And it's not to say those individuals weren't deserving, but that does create barriers for more diverse people with diverse voices to enter into the conversation. So that's the problem I think we had. Again, I think it was a part of process and system. And at some point, so get me wrong, there are always going to be bad actors who are blatantly not going to to do right and who are going to, quite frankly, be racist and not want to hire people of color or women for whatever reason, for their bigoted reasons. But more than anything, I think it's a failure of the systems that we had in place that were designed to recruit and retain top talent. So it's pipeline issues. Yeah, no, I look, I, I agree 100 percent. I mean, the same is true on the conservative side, right? There aren't a lot of conservative Muslim Republicans in national security. Like, I, I don't that might be an N of like three. Right. But the funny thing is, is that, you know, even an organization run by I, my own organization, right? I, I realized this. We had some of our fellows come to me and say, hey, look, we really think the, the organization ought to say something about this. And I actually pushed back and said, I don't think this is really our role. And over time, they convinced me. And when I when I sat down to write the statement we put out. You know, I wrote it at 4 a.m. on a Friday and, and a lot of sort of, it all just sort of poured out. And a lot, there was a lot of sort of frustration and anger that came out as I wrote it because I realized I was angry at myself for not thinking this was important to do, for not thinking it was our job. But I also then, as I was in that conversation, I looked at my own organization, right? Uh, you know, an organization run by a brown person, run by a Muslim, right? Uh, at the Scalia Law School. And I and just looked at and it, and it's, it is, it is shockingly non-diverse. We have a lot of women, interestingly, um, and not enough, but we have, we have a lot. Uh, but minorities, the number is extremely low. And, and like, I run this list. Like, if, if anybody's got a network, right? I mean, it's got to be me, right? Like, what is happening? And so it really was a moment of introspection for me. Is you know, you got to do better, right? You're relying on your networks, but your networks look a lot like the rest of the world because those are the people that help bring you up, right? And so it's something we all got to tackle. We have made a commitment to doing this. And it's, and you're right. It's not just, oh, let's go find a couple of couple minorities to put on our board, right? So then we're good to go, right? It's we got to create that pipeline and we're raising people up, right? And it's not like there are people who want to be in this field, who want to do it. It's a matter of identifying them and giving that mentorship. You know, I don't know what your experience was, but at least my experience, I've never really applied for a job. Somebody has brought me along the entire way, right? And so- Because that's in part, that's, that's the DC culture. Some of the best jobs you don't even hear about, like you get pulled into. No, if, if they have to post a job, they post a job after they've identified who they want for the job. And this is why it's so important that we create that pipeline, that we be very deliberate about thinking about it and actually act on it and not just talk about these ideas, you know? There's also the other side of the coin on this. I don't want there to be a glass cliff either. I don't want the uh, leadership to immediately go out and say, well, we, we're not diverse enough. Let's immediately become diverse and let's go hire these four or five people that, you know, oh yeah, they're, they're smart people. But uh, and, and put them in positions of leadership or important positions, that's, that's great if they have the proper prerequisites. Because if they don't, you're potentially setting them up for failure. And if you haven't clearly explained the expectations and the what could be, honestly, the hornet's nest that you're leaving them in with non-diverse people, with white people who have fought for that job and might be deserving, you're setting them up for failure. 
So that's why I lean so hard on the idea that we have to build a pipeline. We have to make sure that we have proper matriculation for these young professionals. So as they grow up, quote unquote, in their careers in these roles, that you're making sure that, oh, did they have the, the special assistant to the DASD? What about the assistant secretary? Okay, did we get them in a, a DASD position and a principal deputy position? Did we do these things? So when it's time for them to be an assistant secretary or time for them to be looked at for ambassador, these other larger positions, they're ready for them. That's the issue that we're having right now. Everyone wants to be better on diversity but they want to do it right this second. And it's like, well, yeah, there are great people, mid-level people out there that you can get, but they're going to be few and far between because you haven't been investing in this. So build the pipeline now. In a lot of ways, it's almost a way of ignoring the problem. You're like, well, if I just check the box now and I elevate a couple of people who aren't definitely qualified, elevate them, I don't have to worry about the problem of creating more capability down here. All that happens in that case, it's like a festering moon. It just gets bigger and bigger because we're ignoring the core problem, which is the pipeline problem. It's like the same way we've ignored the very real inequality between the inner city and the outer city when it comes to schools. That's part of the economics, part of the racial. But you know, we've allowed ourselves to ignore it because we're like, oh, well, we're, we're fixing it later. And the way I look at it is it's the difference between being rich and wealthy. Someone can go out and hit it big and have a million dollars, and they will be happy for the rest of their lives in that particular instance. But let's talk about generational wealth and how you build that. How can their children and their children's children and their how does that wealth built? Like, yeah, you can go out right now and you can make your organization look better, make yourself feel better by investing in three or four people in these positions for right this second. What are you doing about your pipeline? How are you building out this wealth of diversity, we'll call it, for the long term, for the long haul? So 10 years from now, you're not finding yourself back right in this position. One thing that was brought to my attention that I honestly had thought through is I was thinking through this question of, you know, why should we speak on this issue? And one of the things that uh, that one of our visiting fellows, Harold Moss, uh, brought to me is he said, look, what you don't understand is that part of the reason why we have a diversity problem in the national security intelligence community, the technology community, too, is that if you grew up your entire life looking at that law enforcement authority, that police officer, and thinking, they're not there for me. You're not going to be interested in being part of that larger community when police are sort of, in some ways, an entry point to the military, an entry point to the intelligence community. So if you don't trust those institutions to protect you and to do right by you, you're not going to think, hey, I'm going to be welcome in that other community either. Is that a fair assessment as part of the situation? I wouldn't call them entry points so much as for some individuals, regardless of, of race, but particularly when you're talking about socioeconomics, for a lot of individuals, their only view or vision of government authority, and particularly on a public safety side, our police or our sheriffs or their, their local law enforcement. So when you have local law enforcement that are not considering the individuals they police as a community, they're considering them to some degree being a hostile enemy or hostile force, that they're going out and they're warriors that they're going out to fight against, then yeah, you're not going to have the proper relationship built for that young person to view that police or that department or that entity in a positive context. So of course, whenever they get older and they look at the military or they look at the national security community, it's much more likely that they're not going to be as trusting as others might be of those institutions. And that's a major problem. You just recently wrote a piece in Just Security um, about about this whole issue of military bases and renaming them and the like. Talk to us about the issue with American military bases. I mean, let's not forget, right, the Union won. I, people seem to sort of have, have forgotten that fact. How did this come about? Why did we do this? And why is there even a discussion? Like, why are we even talking about the idea that these bases should be renamed? It seems obvious. What's going on here? 
So let's uh, let's take a step back. There are two parts to why these names even came about. Because keep in mind, the majority of these names that the bases are named after were people who were incompetent. They they weren't good strategists. They weren't good tacticians. Like they were abject failures. And and I don't simply mean in the sense that the South and the Confederacy lost. I mean, as individual leaders, they were not good at their jobs. So the, a part of the reason uh, these names came about first was uh, some level of appeasement. During Reconstruction, you had a wealthy uh, land-owning white, to be frank, that were looking for opportunities to disrupt any level of unity between poor whites and blacks. And former slaves. And you had their leadership in the South that were pushing to restrict this new rising black wealth more and more and looking at ways of doing that. A part of that would be to begin supporting and lifting up, you know, the idea that the South was fighting for their land, they were fighting for their history and getting away from the idea of what we really just finished fighting a war over, which was so they wanted to to disrupt any level of unity coming up, and that that's much a much more broader idea of it. More specifically, when you look at some of these bases, it was quite frankly as a um, message to blacks. And um, when you look at the erecting of statues, and particularly the statues in uh, some of the other areas, came up in the 1950s at the beginning of uh, the civil rights movement. So it, it was an attempt to put down any idea that uh, there there should be equality among the races. But when, but when we talk historically about a lot of these bases, it really was Southern appeasement. It was the, an attempt to bring in a lot of the Southerners who looked down on the Union and felt as though they were wrong in that in the entire effort of civil war to bring them about and say hey look we understand that here's some of your your local uh heroes and we're going to give you an opportunity to name some of these uh areas after them so a combination of, of appeasement and sort of a in the 1950s don't get uppity here and more broadly the ongoing issue that we've already kind of discussed is a system built on uh, systemic racism it's a system built on the idea that one particular group of people, because of their color, were somehow less. So quite frankly, when some of these decisions are made, you don't care how they affect black people. You don't care how they affect people of color. You, you see that individual from that area, oh, well, people seem to really like him. Let's go ahead and go with him. He seems to be a hero. Like you don't think about the second and third tier effects of what a decision like that really ultimately means. Or you like the effects, and you're trying to sort of reiterate them, right? Because you view this class of human as property, right? Or as, as less of a human, right? I mean, it's, it's astounding to me. You think about it, this is part of what I think really sort of really got to me as I was writing this, uh, this piece was you look at the Declaration of Independence that says all men are created equal. We know that our founders didn't really believe that because of the way they behave, right? They meant in some sort of, you know, aspirational sense or with respect to the monarchy or the like, right? But then, you look at the fact that we literally allow people to human beings to be bought and sold as property. And in our own constitution, people forget this. Our constitution literally wrote in the idea that black would be counted as less than a whole human being for the purposes of abortion. It's astounding. And then people say, well, you know, that was that was a long time ago. That was the founding of the nation. We got rid we got over that. Lincoln freed the slaves. We had a whole war over it. We're done. But people forget that. In your parents' generation, as you said, they went to segregated schools. Our laws had black fountains and white fountains, black schools and white schools. And in Little Rock, Arkansas, we didn't desegregate those schools until the National Guard was federalized and marched children into schools. Forget that. 
That was 60 years ago. If they don't shake you to a core, you don't have to. I'm a parent, but I don't feel as though you have to be a parent to be affected if you go back and look at some of those uh, images a little out with with grown adults screaming at a little, at a little girl as she's going into the school. I mean, that, that's sort of why I'm sort of done with this, you know, oh, you can't keep holding people accountable for what happened, you know, hundreds of years ago. It ain't hundreds of years ago. Let's be clear. Well, and, and quite frankly, no one's been held accountable. Oh, when you think about it, the system hasn't. When you, when you think about it, we have not dealt with the, uh, the original sin of slavery. And General John Allen wrote a piece about that earlier this year in The Atlantic that talked about white supremacy as the number one threat to our national security. And it, quite frankly, he's right. Because we have not dealt with the original sin in a way that really encompassed what took place historically, that people were chattel, we were property. And I say all of this, and it sounds like I'm being so negative, but I say all of this because now I'm truly hopeful that this this movement, this moment that is becoming a movement, will finally be able to be the early stages of addressing yeah, so let's talk about what we can do here. So, you know, you went to West Point. Talk about what role the military academies can play here. Let's talk about military recruitment. You know, obviously, there are debates about whether uh, this is an issue that affects officers and enlisted men and women differently. We know that, that oftentimes the enlisted community comes from disproportionately poor, not just not just minority communities, but oftentimes those two correlate because of the systemic issues that we've just discussed. Talk to us about that and, and what we might do in that space to address some of these issues. Sure. And I'd say right now you have a warrior class, too, in which you you have legacy uh, service where a dad or a mother served and then their child served and their child served. So we're seeing a lot of that, too. But um, the Navy and the Marine Corps uh, recently said that they're going to do away with any signs of uh, Confederate symbols anywhere on, on their bases, which is a great step forward. I think the military has recognized here recently that it has a problem with white supremacy within its ranks. You're seeing a lot of uh, folks, uh, veterans that, are, that get out that are being recruited by militias uh, that have direct ties to, to white supremacy, and it, it's becoming an issue. I, I think the military has recognized that they have long uh, had a problem, and they're going through a route or an effort to try to address it. I think uh, a lack of diversity is something that exists on uh, particularly the officer side and then the senior uh, non-commissioned uh, officers. When you uh, look at the hard numbers of uh, the makeup of the military, you see only um, a fraction, a small, I, I don't have the exact percentage in front of me, I apologize, but a small minute fraction of officers and the services are people of color. Whereas a dis, and it's a disproportionate number that are, uh, of enlisted folks is kind of, as you mentioned, that representation matters. Uh, when you talk about recruitment and retention, you talk about your ability to not only bring top talent into the military, but to keep top talent there. It is important that you have proper representation across the board. Uh, it's going to be easier for you to have, uh, individuals that can mentor. Uh, folks, whenever they have uh, similar life experiences, it gives you more uh, thoughtful innovation whenever you're trying to deal and, and problem solve. If you have someone that has a background that is uh, urban and along with people that have uh, rural backgrounds, that have backgrounds that are from the deep south versus the, the, the southwest, all of the, the type of team that you're building really does matter. And the military sees that it has an issue and it is trying to address it. You'll see this year um, from West Point, it had the largest number of black women graduate, I believe it's 38, that it's had ever in its history. That is a huge step. I want it to be 250. I want it to be incredibly large. But it's a step in the, in a, in the right direction. These are 
the, the military academies in West Point particularly, because I'm a West Pointer, are the best military academies the world has ever known. They're top universities that are consistently voted as top universities in uh, U.S. Uh, News and World Reports and in Fortune. So to have cadets coming out of there that are more diverse and that, un- that have been exposed to others uh, within their ranks that are diverse and have heard about the type of issues that we are now currently discussing are incredibly important because when they get to their units, guess what? A chunk of their uh, soldiers and NCOs that they're dealing with are going to be diverse. So it's important that they are exposed early and that they have the ability to learn and at least attempt to understand and see that culture uh, from the eyes of others who are a part of it so they will have a better grasp of how to interact with, deal with, and relate to uh, those individuals that they're serving. All of this is incredibly important. We're in the larger conversation nationally about these issues. Obviously, um, sometimes we it's easy to get stuck in that big picture conversation, the big ideas. What can we as individuals, members of the national security community, what can we do to advance the cause of equality, to make a difference at a very granular level? Are the things that our listeners that they can individually or collectively take to make a stronger, more diverse, more inclusive national security community? Yeah, keep asking questions. Ask questions of experts and ask them of your, of your uh, peers. I've already told uh, uh, many of my colleagues that, you know, if you don't know people that are diverse or you feel like you don't know enough, ask me and I'll do what I can to, to reach out to my networks to help you out. A big thing that I think you hit on earlier from your perspective as an executive director uh, as well as a, a leader of an organization is the idea that you need to start looking at your pipelines. You need to start saying, how can I make my organization more diverse? I've already fielded four or five in the last two weeks, four or five uh, requests to try to find young, diverse candidates for positions. That's great. And that's like, and not that I don't ever get any of those, but five and two weeks from it is a lot. And it's, it's showing that people are starting to, to think about this more. The more that we do this, the more we can formalize uh, these types of efforts. Mentor people. Go out of your way to go find a young person of color, a young woman of color, and pull them to the side and say, hey, I see that you're, you know, you're going about your way in your career. You're achieving what you want to achieve. I would love to talk to you more about what you're doing in career. If you have any type of questions, I can help answer. If there's anything I can do for you. I'm not saying that you have to go out and hire them. I'm saying that you give them pointers that someone gave you previously that maybe they have not heard about. Teach, tell them about networking. Tell them about, you know, where some of the, the best ways of getting jobs in D.C. might be. How do you navigate the hill? Talk about these types of things. So, and those are small things that we can be doing now. Like, they Everyone knows a young professional of color somehow in their life and in their career. Talk to them. See, just reach out. Like, and if nothing else, look at their work and tell them, hey, you know what? This is, you're doing a great job. Keep it up. Just hearing that, hearing that we are on the correct path and that we're doing the right things can go such a long way. And in a lot of instances, they don't necessarily hear that, particularly from people that don't look like them. So that is incredibly important. too. Bishop, thank you for being with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at Mason Natsek. If you like what we are doing, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing 
And as always, the amazing and inimitable Grant Haver Production Assistant. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.